Welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Elizabeth, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, who is the wonderful Dr. Sally Chung. And today we'll be discussing how intergenerational wealth can appear in non-traditional ways, such as the passing down of wisdom and knowledge and how that may pose as a potential barrier for immigrant families. And so why don't we jump into today's conversation? So first of all, Dr. Sally Chung, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell me a little bit about what it is you do, what your specializations are, etc. Yes, of course. Thank you, Elizabeth, for inviting me and um, having this really lovely conversation about intergenerational wealth. Um, so um, I'm Sally Chung. I'm a board certified clinical psychologist in um, the United States. I work in uh, Washington State, just outside of the Seattle area in a suburb, Bellevue. Um, I own a private practice, so I see mostly adult patients, adult couples. Most of my folks are people of color, mostly Asian American or Asian. I do um, couples therapy, individual therapy. I also do psychological testing for issues such as ADHD or learning disabilities, things like that. That's wonderful. So it sounds like you would have a lot to say about this topic at hand because, you know, the majority of your clientele is our people of color and Asian American. So I just want to dive into like first when it comes to, you know, the barriers that immigrant families face, what what types of barriers do they face and what does it what does it mean and why does that matter? I think immigrant families can come up against a number of obstacles um, post-immigration, things like language barriers. If they don't come knowing the language of this new country, then they have to uh, manage that or ensure that their children uh, learn enough of that language to navigate the new place they live in, financial barriers. Uh, Many immigrant families are moving so that they can create better financial stability, uh, financial opportunities for themselves and their children. Cultural, social, occupational barriers. We know that oftentimes um, education doesn't always transfer over. So you might be someone with a college degree or um, be middle class or above in your native country, but moving to like a country like the US, that education may not transfer over. And you might not be able to get a a job in that same field at that same level, at least right away, without having to return back to school or do post-grad work to um, affirm your credentials and your expertise. So it sounds like even even to start with, there's a lot of stress with the process of that. And, you know, when, when it comes to sort of getting accustomed to a new country, I think, you know, I think it would be in, our, in everyone's best interest to try and find a way to uh, reduce that that stress and help people, you know, acclimate to the new environment. And so I, I saw that you did an Instagram post about intergenerational wealth as knowledge and wisdom instead. And I thought that was really cool and meaningful because I never thought about it that way, but it made so much sense. And so I'm just wondering, like, what? how would you define intergenerational wealth uh, in a more traditional sense, and what does it mean to to sort of lack the the more I, I suppose deeper deeper understanding of it as as just understanding of of the world and how that can uh, be a barrier to succeeding? Um, I think 
the idea of intergenerational wealth is pretty complex. And I think it, they all overlap. So traditionally, when we think of intergenerational wealth, we think of money or assets, properties that parents pass down to kids, right? Um, the inheritances they receive after death, uh, being able to pay for college, buy that car for them when they hit of age in the US at 16, pay, you know, pay for vacations and camps and things like that. So when we think of finance, uh, intergenerational wealth, it's normally thought of as, as financial. When people think of wealth, they tend to think of money. Um, but I think I like being an immigrant myself, coming from an immigrant family, working with a lot of folks in my caseload who come from immigrant families, you start to realize that there's a lot, and it overlaps with the money piece, but also a lot of things that people don't think about when we look at the knowledge and the wisdom that feel like they're just very commonly known, like things such as um, what your kid needs to go before they can apply to get into kindergarten, um, all the way to like how to help your kids get into college, whether that's literally knowing how to walk through the applications, the financial aid forms, or, you know, the types of colleges that would fit for them, the types of post-high school experiences or during high school experiences that would set them up for a better future. All the things that I think if you grow up in a country, you, you kind of take for granted, like, you know, oh yeah, kids do camps during summer or they take music lessons or sports activities. They do internships. If you didn't know that your kid had to do internships to make them more competitive for college or for more competitive for that first post-grad job, how do you help your kids um, succeed that way? Yeah, and so I, I suppose that the the way that there there's there's much more to it than just financial resources. And I think that's the one that, that most people focus on when it comes to sort of bridging the gap um, with regard to, you know, people who are marginalized or disadvantaged. But I think that understanding the, the deeper qualitative experience of growing up with 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 from an immigrant family i think i think that sort of unravels you know the reality of the situation which is that it's much more than just lacking financial opportunities it's it's knowing how it's knowing how to navigate the systems and so and be and thus being able to sort of you know flourish in a sense and so i think i think that you know i think it's important to talk about so then people at least understand you know in a more nuanced way beyond just oh you're starting off from a disadvantage. It's okay. How? What does this disadvantage look like in reality, right? And so you had discussed that it, it might it might have a barrier with the educational system in understanding how to navigate that. And I'm wondering, you know, how how does this impact one's ability to succeed in other regards as well? And you know, is is this giving some people an, an advantage? And and is what what do you think about that? I think we mostly see it in educational and social spaces. Um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily giving other people the advantage than putting someone who doesn't have these resources at a disadvantage, if you get my drift. Um, like I mentioned that I did testing for things like learning disabilities and ADHD. So a college student who doesn't know they have ADHD but struggles, right? Can't focus, can't finish their exams, doesn't get their homework done, can't maintain relationships because they forget to text them back or they're really bad at it. 
Um, I don't think they would say that people who don't have these problems have an advantage, but they would say they are at a distinct disadvantage because they can't function at that same uh, place that their peers do. So I think there's a difference in other people having an advantage and then you being at a disadvantage. They're not necessarily exclusive, but I think it is they are pretty distinct in this situation. Um, not knowing some of these things can make it harder for your child to access things. If your child is having learning problems and you didn't know um, what to do, right? Maybe you don't know that your child can get tested like through the school district and maybe you can't afford to get them tested privately if you knew that that was the kind of testing they needed at all. We know that early prevention is important. So um, if your child was already exhibiting symptoms at a very young age, preschool or daycare, but you couldn't afford for them to go to like a good preschool or a good daycare with like a small, you know, uh, child to staff ratio, then you wouldn't catch those things early enough. But you might, your child might not get the help they need till much later in life. Um, and we know that students who have some of these cognitive disabilities or issues struggle in school, sometimes socially, academically. And so some of that we see um, immigrant parents saying, oh, I didn't know ADHD was a thing. We don't have that. Like we didn't, I didn't know that growing up or our family was always this way. Um, and you know, then now we kind of start edging into um, mental health stigma a little bit. Um, but I think there's a social piece to it too. If your child can't make friends because they don't know how to fit and they don't know that this is what all the kids do or just the different norms that their own family has compared to the families of their, of their peers and of their classmates, um, it can make them feel really disconnected or kind of stuck like they don't know where they belong. Right. Especially if they don't have other family or other community here to kind of reaffirm like, oh no, this is this is who you are and you're okay and we're gonna get through. I think for the therapists who work with families or families of color immigrants who work with this population or have experience with this population, whether personally and professionally, I think they might not label like intergenerational wealth or, or knowledge or wisdom, but they do know that immigrant families, especially those coming without a lot of financial resources, do have trouble accessing some of these um, services and resources. Um, I think if for the therapists who may not work in this sphere, don't work a lot with people of color, they might not really see it. Um, so I, I think it could be really helpful because for the therapists who work with this population, it can be really validating to say, yeah, of course, it's so hard. Like your parents came over, they, they don't know this country, they don't know the language. You had to figure out how to fill out your financial aid forms. You had to do their taxes for them. You had to interpret for them at all the medical appointments, or even like you saw your parents not going to the doctor so they could save the money to take you to the doctor um, and see how just normal and to normalize that experience and to validate how hard it was for them. Um, and if you are working with like a family with younger kids to be able to go and let us help you access some of these resources. You know, the school is saying this about your child. You're telling me your child's struggling with this at home. Let's see, let's see if we can get um, what we can do to help you with that. 
if we can find community resources and where they offer information or services in a various languages um, to help with some of that language barrier, that would also be really helpful. Because you know what all of us know, like we understand things much better in our native language or first language, whatever that language is, rather than your brain trying to jump the hoops of translating it, um, especially if you learn that second language later in life. And I think helping to even advocate, because oftentimes um, parents will go try to go to bat for their kids only to be dismissed or be to be told that there's nothing that they can be done. But if you have like a medical professional or a mental health professional step in and say, hey, like, this is why we're trying to do this, that might be helpful to kind of fill in some of that gap, especially if the parents are worried that these different social systems or services won't take them seriously. Right. So having a more culturally informed system of care for people from, you know, all backgrounds seems to be, seems like it would help a lot of people, you know, access, you know, the service that they deserve, honestly. Um, and so you mentioned that there's, it's, it sounds, it almost sounds like there's a lot of pressure on, on the kids to act as the translator and to do, do all of these forms by themselves and to navigate, you know, this new world sort of without the, uh, the information that, you know, may have been given by their parents if they were, you know, in a country where their parents could help them better um, by understanding, you know, the systems and the culture. Um, it almost sounds like there's a little bit of parentification going on and that being second generation is a whole different ballgame than the first generation immigrant experience. Uh, would you yeah. like to explain that and help me understand? Absolutely. And, and kind of to be a little clearer, we're talking about the immigration experiences of families that came over where the parents are not necessarily financially stable or not fluent, don't have um, the tech jobs that a lot of our first gen uh, immigrants have today. So um, immigrant families where their kids are older at this point. So if we kind of go from that point, you have parents who are working low paying jobs many, many hours a day, just trying to put food on the table, trying to figure out how to create this life for themselves and for their families. And we know kids learn fast, right? And they lean a lot on their kids, um, whether they realize it or not, to do what they have to do, like get your homework done, you know, eat your dinner, go to bed, get to school on time, because they don't necessarily have the time or bandwidth um, to be as present or as available as they, they, they'd like to be. So oftentimes we see oldest children um, being parentified to like watch the younger siblings or to, because they're better at English, being the one to talk to the teacher or to navigate these systems or their job is to will learn how to navigate the systems to help the family because the parents either don't know how or don't have time to do it or don't have the linguistic ability to do so. Um, and we know that you know, just in research, second generational folks tend to have higher rates of mental health um, issues like depression or anxiety than first gen or third gen. And a lot of that is kind of being caught in that not knowing where I fit, right? Growing up in a family where their culture is very different than their parents' culture. So your parents, generally they're coming over, you know, in their, what, teens to adulthood. They're, how they see themselves is fairly set. And then growing up here, whether you were born here or uh, moved here at a very, very young age, 
the culture in your home is one culture, but then you go to school and you do things outside of the home, it's a whole different thing, a whole different world. And you're trying to figure out what is you and what is not you. And that can be really confusing and really difficult. Third gen generally has less of this issue because you know they have parents who generally are more acculturated and more understanding. Um, so they tend to be more westernized or talking about like immigrating to like America or Canada. So second gen folks tend to have more struggles in trying to figure out who they are, where they fit, and, and what feels aligned to who they are identity-wise. Right, yeah. It almost sounds like the process of developing one's identity is almost disrupted because you're sort of caught in between two cultures where, you know, at home your parents speak one language and then at school they speak a different language. And it's almost as though you have to choose or find a way to integrate them together. And that sounds like it would be especially difficult, especially since I, I'd imagine that being second generation, you know, it's, 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 you're, you're starting for the first time and trying to integrate those two pieces of culture together. And that's not really something you see modeled in other places, right? And so you don't really have a reliable way to a framework to navigate that. So it's all, it's all new for you. And now we are in my wheelhouse because this was my dissertation topic. Um, and so not necessarily, not necessarily disrupted, but it is more complex, right? If you, uh, grew up, uh, say you're Chinese, born and raised in China, you're Chinese, like you're, you're at least your racial identity is really set. Uh, who you are, how other things impact your cultural identity might be more fluid, but you know, you kind of know racially, this is who you are, this is your language, this is your family. Um, but for those folks who are maybe Asian, like in America, or Asian in Canada, or Asian in a, a different country altogether, and we have all these different influences and experiences that their that their parents and older members of their family didn't have. It is that kind of push and pull and exploration. So it's a different path for them to either, you know, some folks will assimilate completely. They will, you know, open arms, accept this world that they moved into and they might put away their, their native culture, their native language, that native identity to uh, assimilate. That's, that would be the clinical term. Some folks, they don't really feel like either the Western world they are living in or the, maybe the Eastern culture they were raised in fit. And so maybe they'll reject both of them and, and really uh, gravitate towards a whole different part of their identity to make that the focal point. Um, you have folks who um, can also find that balance or, well, yes, you have the folks to find the balance. Before that, you have the folks who reject the world they came into and they, they stay more closely with that native culture. That's where they feel like they fit in. People who look like them, talk like them, think like them. So those are the folks who um, stay in their, in their native um, ethnic group. And like you said, the ones who manage to culturate to find that balance, who um, identify as being bicultural, trying to navigate that, how do they balance their racial identity with the influences in which they grew up um, to figure out who they are. And even in that bicultural category, we see this wide range of how people um, make that balance and, and make that work for them. Right. 
it almost sounds as though this sounds like a very stressful, prolonged experience throughout one's life. It's not just a simple, okay, I'm going to be bicultural now. It's not, it's not that sort of tacit understanding. It's more, it's more, it sounds more like a, it would be a continuous struggle over time. And then it's this development of an identity. And so in, in terms of mental health, what impact would that have on, 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 you know, with your mental health and, you know, the broader framework of, of one's development? I think that struggle is hard. Um, and it's not always very obvious, right? You, you know, you don't think, oh, I hate being Asian and I hate being in America. So I'm marginalized in this stage of my life. Um, I think many um, second gen folks, they nav they all, we all navigate this. And some folks have it easier than others. Some folks find kind of where they fit. Some people find that balance. Um, and I think going through all these different stages, I think there are different mental health impacts and outcomes. I mean, oftentimes we're looking at things that will help us feel protected or if you help us feel welcomed or that we belong somewhere. And so I don't think for some folks, maybe being bicultural doesn't make sense for them, even though you know, a lot of folks end up there. Maybe we see different mental health outcomes for that particular group. Um, but regardless of where they end up, I think the important thing is for them to be kind of aware of that process at some point. Like, is this where you, if this is where you feel like you belong, this is where you land, this is how you identify, what contributes to that? How do you feel about that? And so we do work with folks who, you know, struggle with their families of origin. Um, and that the anxiety or the depression or the attachment problems that come with that isn't because of where they are in that cultural identity journey, but it is coming from that family. And a lot of that growing up stress is contributing to how they experience their native culture or their native her their heritage, right? Because if you don't have that community or extended family, then your family of origin is literally the biggest point of connection to that to that background you don't really know very much about. And if you struggle with your family, then you're gonna have some pretty complex feelings about your racial identity and how you fit into that broader, broader context. Right, so it's not necessarily the cultural identity struggle is necessarily the origin of all the issues. It's more that it's a sort of concordant, you know, parallel process where it's more about, you know, broader issues about growing up with a family who is not of the same culture as the one that you're growing up in today. And so just to sort of wrap things up, I'm just wondering if there's like one key takeaway that we can take from, you know, what can we do to support people who lack this sort of intergenerational wisdom and knowledge? You know, what what is something tangible that we could do to change these sort of, you know, social, economic and educational systems so then people who are disadvantaged, you know, are able to access the services they need? Big question, Elizabeth. Um, I wish I had a magic wand so I can just kind of wave it and have this, this one um, solution. But I think the biggest one is um, community and network. Um, even if you are lower income or having trouble accessing resources, if you're plugged in to a church or you have family friends or extended family or other people who've maybe been here longer, 
who can help you figure out, oh, this is what your, you need, this is what your kid's gonna need. Or if you need to find a job, let me help you with this resume. Oh, here's some English classes. Oh, the library offers ESL coaching. Um, so to help immigrant families and immigrant children and parents um, develop trust in these community resources in, in, uh, with friends, with loved ones who can help them access this. Because I think a lot of what's also hard that plays into some of this is immigrant paranoia, that they can't trust the people around them or they're not sure how much they can trust them um, with their struggles or to get help. Uh, so I think being able to help families develop trust with these with good trustworthy uh, resources can help them be able to access or find out some of this knowledge or have a place to turn to when they're not sure what to do. Um, because we don't we don't know what we don't know. So how do we go find that out if we don't even know any of that? Um, but I think communication and community really helps ground people. And so I think being able to have that network, that social network can be a really positive impact for immigrant families. For sure. I, I would agree with that. It, it almost sounds that facilitating that connection through other areas makes it so that it almost almost compensates for that lack of intergenerational wisdom and that you're seeking that sort of transfer of knowledge and wisdom from another source. And that facilitation of trust and communicative relationships with your community and other members, friends, family, the church, or whatever other organizations in your community, you know, it, yeah. it can be wherever, wherever it is. That, that that sounds like it's it's a great place to start um, and it's more reasonable than trying to tackle the system at large and changing all the little bits and pieces yeah, yeah. and the thing is like even having that the community and places for people to go to learn these things isn't anything that people who live in that country don't do they all had to learn that from somewhere right there there had to be some person who had to learn oh Oh, so and so's kid did an internship. So we should tell our kids to do an internship. So um, it is that collective knowledge of every generation learning more and being able to pass it down. And so we are just trying to plug these families into that system where they can find it out and learn it um, so they can pass it down. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chung. This was amazing. I feel like I've learned so much about this. I'm just really grateful to have this conversation with you. So you've reached the end of this episode with the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast. Thanks for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.org.yorku.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you in the next episode.